look at uh, verse uh, tonight, today, this morning, we're looking at verse 14 and 15. It is an excellent challenge. Uh, let me just read the text and then we'll pray and jump right in. Philippians chapter 2, again now, verse 14 and 15. Paul exhorts these believers in the town of Philippi. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. And then he gives the reason. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. May God help us to, as Jesus said, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us, help me right now as we look at this very simple challenge. And uh, it's simple to preach, it's simple to understand, but it is not simple to put into practice. And Father, we have all, uh, in many things we offend all and and. and Every one of us have stumbled at times with our words in saying the wrong things and not saying the right things. But Father, help us to understand what Paul is exhorting us uh, through the Philippians so that we might put our Christianity into practice. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So what is Paul talking about this morning in these two verses? He is talking about our testimony, uh, and that's clear in verse 15, uh, how we conduct ourselves in this world with people watching us. But he's not just talking about our testimony in general. He's talking about our verbal testimony. Verbal meaning our words. Now, of course, we live in a day where uh, the, the words that come out of our mouth aren't the only thing we have to be concerned with. We've got to be concerned with what we text, what we post, you know, emails we send. I mean, there's so many different things that we have to be careful of. But, but here he is telling us, as he's telling the Philippians, he says two things in verse 14. And it's not just a, in a you know, compartmentalized area of your life. Okay, when it comes to this thing, be careful, watch your words. No, he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Do all things without murmurings. Uh, Mumbled complaints. I have a note in my Bible on that. And disputings, arguments. He's telling us about our verbal testimony. What is your verbal testimony? In other words, when people think of you, your words, your conversations, the things that you've said, it's amazing how some people, how all of us, are affected by words. I didn't write these down, but I had four different verses in Proverbs to talk about the words of a tailbearer go down as deep wounds. And so certain words that we say can have great effect on people. And so we want to talk today about your verbal testimony. What is your verbal testimony? Are you careful in what you say 
and what you don't say? Do people know you to be a gossip or a complainer? By the way, the, the word murmurings is talking about complaining. And uh, so we're going to look at that. Let's jump right in. Uh, let me give you the outline. Three things. We're just looking at these two verses. The first two points are based on the first verse. Uh, first, we learn about verbal discontentment. Do all things without murmuring. Do you know when you and I murmur, we are complaining? And do you know that we don't always realize when we are complaining? And, and then, so that's the first point. Second point is verbal discord. Do all things without murmuring and disputings. So we don't want to be complainers. We don't want to be argumentative people. And then the third point is the next verse, which is our reason, the fault, what's wrong with it. He says, do all things without murmuring and disputings. And then in um, that ye may be, verse 15. In other words, if you want to be a good testimony, and that's what he's talking about, verse Verse 15, blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus, I mentioned this in my prayer, I think. When Jesus said, he said, you are the light of the world. He said, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. One of the best ways that you and I can be a witness, which is our testimony, is by what we say. And one of the ways that we can nullify our witness is by what we say. And when you and I murmur and complain, we are not being blameless and harmless in this world. So, first of all, verse 14 again, verbal discontentment. What is Paul telling us? What is he telling these believers not to do? Verse 14 again, do all things without murmuring. What is murmuring? Again, uh, murmuring is probably the, the most uh, modern word that we would use for that is the word to complain. Listen to some of these references in Scripture that use the word murmuring. Because here, number one, murmuring is always against someone. When you and I murmur, we are always complaining about someone. If we're not complaining about someone, it's not a murmur. It's not a, we're not, um, you know, we're not, we're not um, complaining. So listen to some of these verses. Jesus said, or no, the Bible says in Matthew 20, verse 11, and when they had received it, this is a parable of Jesus's, they murmured against the good men of the house. Notice, this was, remember the guys that lined up, the vineyard guy had a vineyard, and he was trying to hire people to work on the vineyard, and he started out early in the day, and and throughout the day, he kept hiring people. He told them, initially told them, I'm going to pay you a day's wage. Then he started saying, I'll pay you what's right. And then when they all lined up, they all expected, you know, the ones that were there all day expected big bucks. Because the, the guys that were only there for a couple hours at the end of the day went first, they got a full day's wage. And so the guys in the back of the line start thinking, whoo-hoo, if he's giving them a whole day's wage and they only worked a couple hours, we're probably going to get double time. And they had these expectations. And when they got to the end of the line, they got exactly what they were promised, which was a day's wage. Which when they initially took the job, there was no problem. They're, they're, gonna, they're getting a day's work. You know, they, they had no problem because they were employed. They were going to get paid for it. 
But it wasn't until they start comparing what they got with other people. And then they murmured against the goodman. And by the way, that's a picture. The, the goodman, the, the man that was the vineyard owner, that's a picture of God. And how many times are we content based on what God gives us individually until we start comparing it with other people and what they have or don't have? That's why Paul said in Corinthians, we dare not make ourselves of the numbers. In other words, stop. And then he says, or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. And then he says, for they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves against themselves are not wise. And yet we do it. It's, it's human nature. You know, he gets, she gets. Remember family, first, when we first started our church in the other building, we had a family that had a couple girls. They had a couple kids. And the mom would always say this, you know, that, uh, no, I know, the mom would say it about her and the husband, the dad. If dad got something, that mom got something. He gets, she gets. And, of course, the kids, and I just always, I've always, always thought of that because that's kind of how we operate, you know. My kids did that. Hey, if this one gets that, then I should get that. And, and I see a lot of adults do that. It's not like we're conscious of it. But, you know, this, this idea of, you know, legislated fairness, everything, forced fairness, everything has to be fair. Folks, everything is not fair. And everything shouldn't be fair because there's so many factors involved in a situation. But notice it's they murmured against the good men. So the, the good men is just another word for the vineyard owner, the, the, the laborer, the, the boss. Here's another one. Luke, 5, Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples. Remember, Jesus was walking with the disciples along the, uh, uh, a crop of corn. And as the law allowed them, uh, in any crop, every, this was back to Israel in, in Old Testament times, that you allowed the out, outer rim of the crop could always be left for people walking by. They could take it and it was, it was good. But they did it on the Sabbath. And so Jesus' disciples are walk, walking along. They pick some ears of corn. They start eating. And all of a sudden the Pharisees are condemning them. Not because they took someone else's corn that was allowed, but because they did it on a Sabbath. And it says the scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And then the context again is that, that they, um, they condemned him. Acts 6 verse 1, another one. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. How amazing. And when you see this word murmured, it's always against. It's against someone. It's complaining, censuring. We are discontent and we are expressing that dissatisfaction with whatever someone is doing. Sometimes our, sometimes our complaints can be against God. Paul, not just here, but to the Corinthians, Paul made a statement. He said, neither murmur ye. So this is not just limited to the Philippians. Paul would say this to many. And, and folks, this is a challenge for us. God says, hey, don't murmur. Don't complain. And look what, he, look what he said. He said, neither murmur ye. 
as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Wow. Now I want you to take your Bibles and go back to Numbers chapter, um, Numbers chapter 16. I want you to see this example that Paul is talking about in the Corinthians. And, and maybe he was thinking of it even when he wrote to the Philippians. Numbers chapter 16. You may not see yourself as a complainer. I never did until uh, I had family and somehow they got it in their mind that I actually complained. Can you believe that? Why did God give me this family? I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I think the more I realize it, you know, we all tend to complain and you may not realize it. So look at, look at this example in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 41. The Bible says, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses. There it is again. They're murmuring against. That's when we complain. You know, we're not happy with someone. We're going to let them know against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. This provokes God. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Isn't that amazing that Moses and Aaron, Moses would get so frustrated uh, at the people because of their complaining. And, and it was, you know, it was against him and Aaron. And yet Moses wasn't like stepping back saying, go get them, Lord. Remember the th son, sons of thunder were ready to call down fire from heaven. Moses could have said, Lord, would you just get rid of them? You know, because the Lord was very provoked by that. But here's Moses trying to appeal on their behalf. Verse 47. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. Now, here's an interesting thing. Again, this is against Moses and Aaron. Of course, we would learn else, elsewhere where God would say, this, they're not murmuring against you, they're murmuring against me. And by the way, folks, when we complain... Even when we complain to people or we think the focus is against people, oftentimes we're just simply uttering discontentment, murmuring. But I want you to notice that, uh, in fact, this, this, um, what happened with, with the Corinthians here uh, also was Paul's concern for the Philippians. But notice that Paul attributes... Now, he's, he's referring to this text in number 16 that we just looked, looked at. And Paul attributes the death of the people. Notice how it's attributed here. Twice it says, at least twice it says, the plague. It's the plague. But Paul doesn't say that in, in his commentary in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10. He says, they were destroyed of the destroyer. You know who the destroyer is? It is the devil. Isn't that interesting? That 
God's judgment. This was clearly God stepping the, you know, stepping the protection back, lifting, lifting that hedge of protection back, and allowing Satan to judge them. And God will often do that to chasten, to rebuke his people. I want to remind you that God hasn't changed his opinion about complaining. When you and I complain, we may feel like, you know, so many times, and I've probably done this myself, I'm sure. So many times we think, I'm just letting off steam. Oh, I'm just getting something off my chest. You know, we, 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 we make it sound so light. But the bottom line is, we're complaining. We're, this isn't right. I'm not good with this. And that, you know, that's interpreted by God often as discontentment. I was looking up a commentary, commentary on this word murmur here in Philippians. And one of the commentators, I love when I see new words, and I'm always seeing new words. I want to increase my vocabulary. Sometimes I make words up. Uh, that's not what my intention is. But in a definition, one, one commentator made this statement about murmuring. Murmuring is expression of contumacious discontent. Now, I know what the word discontent means, but contumacious? I never heard that word in my life. Any of you ever heard of contumacious? No. Okay. So, what, so I had to look it up. What is contumacious? It is obstinate, haughty, arrogance. So, uh, and here, so here's the whole definition. This is a pretty good definition. It is an expression of contumacious, that's haughty, obstinate discontent without right or reason. And see, it's not that we can never say anything negative or never point out something that's wrong. That is not of itself complaining. But you and I have to be very careful that in our articulation of something, an observation of something that's not right, it is, in fact, most often this term to complain has everything to do with grumbling, like, you know, we're, we're expressing discontentment. Now, Paul, a good example of this would be in Corinthians, Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. He didn't identify it. Uh, some people believe it was an eye disease because he talked about that, but that's speculation. He obviously didn't identify it because we all have thorns in the flesh. Sometimes it's people. Sometimes it's health situations. Sometimes it's financial. We all have thorns, thorns in the flesh. And so Paul, it was not like Paul said immediately, oh, I love this thorn in the flesh. Lord, give me 50 more. No, he immediately prayed that it would depart from him. He wasn't happy about it. And after he prayed three times, the Lord said, basically said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words... This was one thing that God wasn't going to remove. So what could Paul do? Well, a lot of Christians would just keep praying and praying and praying and praying. Decades later, Lord, why haven't you taken this thorn out of my side here? Why is this still in my life? But as soon as Paul got the idea that, you know what, God wants me to have this, he totally changed his attitude and he said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, my pains my irritations, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's what Paul was telling the Philippians. Things, you're not gonna, things are not always going to go pleasing or your way. But be careful that you don't just continually 
utter censures about what's going on because God has some things in our life for a purpose. And, and so we have to learn what Paul learned and praise God. But the problem is, that's not our default setting. It's not our, it's not natural to want to praise God. And I, I tell you, um, or I'd be the biggest hypocrite that um, I have frustrations too. Can you believe that? I was making my wife coffee this morning and the whole stupid thing fell and spilled all over the place. Now normally I would express praise Jesus. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. But thankfully I passed this test this morning. I go, okay. <laughs> I wish I did that all the time. I don't do that all the time. But you know what? We, I, are you like me? I think we all are. I mean, it's so easy to complain. Oh, this is wrong. Oh, this is wrong. And, and, and you know, in fact, I, I, was, I just came across this. This is amazing. Like, here's a statement I, I, um, I read recently. Need something to complain about? That's like a loaded question. I just took my son to set up a new bank account. He got a job. He's going to be getting, you know, uh, deposits, automatic deposits. So we got a new bank account. And this came up in light of that. Uh, someone said, need something to complain about? Because often when we go to a bank, we want a bank that's federally insured, right? You, you know, the government's behind it. Well, somebody said this, need something to complain about? It's not very encouraging to know that your bank deposits are protected by an agency of a federal government that's $34.23 trillion in debt. Oh, great. If you were feeling good about your bank account, you can forget it now, right? Look who's securing it. But I mean, there's so many little things like that where it's so easy to complain. It's so easy to just express exacerbation that we're just not happy, that we're discontent. But we don't see it as complaining. But God often does. I love a certain quote that you've heard a million times if you've been here any length of time. Uh, it's one of my favorite Hudson Taylor quotes. Hudson Taylor was a missionary that uh, was, was a, a pioneer in missions to China. Just an incredible, incredible godly man that lived by faith. His, uh, his biography is just phenomenal. And Hudson Taylor made this statement. I often quote it for what comes towards the end of it. Um, but... In light of what, we're, what Paul's talking about, we just looked at number 16, you know, in 1 Corinthians, the, like they did and were destroyed of the destroyer. So here's Hudson Taylor. He's getting ready by faith to go to China, and he's, he, it's all ahead of him. He's not sure, you know, how is the Lord going to provide? Will there be enough people? What if my needs aren't met? There's so many what ifs, all those things that get us bogged down. But in his journal, one day, before he left, he made this statement, and it would become famous. He say, here's the whole context of it. Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that His children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect He will send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, 
he would have ample means to sustain them all. And then he would say that quote that I love quoting. He said, count on it or depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. He said, he is too wise a God to frustrate his purposes because of a lack of funds. He is just as able to provide beforehand as afterward, and he much prefers to do so. That last, the last two sentences, the last, last two sentences is, I mean, I love that. That is, that is awesome. But think of the context. Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. Now he's thinking he's getting ready to go to China, just him and a couple people. He's not, you know, he's, here he is by faith saying, the same God that provided for three million Israelites can surely take care of us. You know, we don't expect he's going to send, I love that, we don't, we don't expect he will send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, this is the confidence he has in God. If he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend on it. God's work done, God's, God's going to provide. I love that faith. You see, so many times, the devil whispers in our ears all those what ifs. You're going to go to China? You're not going to have support from people back in the States? You have no idea what's ahead of you. There's so many what ifs that clearly you know the devil threw some of them things in his mind. In fact, that's why he wrote this. Maybe he was probably even verbalized to him. What about you? Who are you trusting your future for? What are your anxieties? What's ahead? What are some worries that you have? You're not guaranteed what's going to happen in the future. It's all unknown. And maybe you stay up awake at night thinking of it. Churning it over in your mind. Think of the God that we have. That has already demonstrated Himself over and over again. You can count on Him. I love this. I've mentioned this before, especially when I was younger. And now the Lord's bringing those words back to haunt me. Uh, when I first became a pastor, I used to get very frustrated with old people. Because they seemed to complain a lot. And I was like a carefree young dude. Yeah, I mean, I just, I was the happy-go-lucky. I guess my, my dad was a very happy-go-lucky guy. And I became that happy-go-lucky guy, you know, just not a care. And, and we'd have older people that would, you know, just kind of complain and grumble. This is wrong. I remember when I pastored another church, uh, there was a, a dear man that I loved dearly and his wife. But he would always complain. And, and we were a small church. And believe me, the smaller your church is, I learned this, the more impact that just one or two complainers have. We were so small that this man would just complain always about the weather. And it was a time, we lived in Lancaster, I was pastoring up there, and there was a drought. And, of course, if there's a drought, that means the farms aren't getting the, you know, the water, and that means the, it's going to, I mean, the economy, the food, I, I, mean, I mean, there's so much to worry about. And he would just go on every, every week. I don't think he realized it. He was just lamenting. Might have even asked for a prayer for the, you know, the drought. And then I remember, and it was, because we were a small church, I would start getting knots in my stomach going to church, just anticipating this guy's complaints, you know. <laughs> it could be that bad. 
And I remember one Sunday, it, it, it was raining all weekend. And I remember just rejoicing and thinking, oh, finally relief from complaining. And, you know, and I got there and the first thing out of his mouth, you know, they say if it rains too much too quick, it's, and then he, just, he started complaining. And I thought, you know, and again, I love this guy. He probably did not see it because I, I am now that old man that is like complaining and I find myself wanting to just, oh, this is not right. And who knows, maybe there's some of you young ones that are coming up, man, pastor complains so much, you know, please tell me, you know, I don't want to be a complainer, but it's so easy for us to express censure. That, when I came across this article like 13 years ago, my heart rejoiced. This was, this was a news article on November 4th, 2010, 20, November 4th, 2010. A dear lady named Eunice Sanborn, at that time, became the world's oldest living person. You know, old people grumbling and complaining. She was celebrating her 114th birthday. This was, her birthday was July 20th. This paper, the newspaper article was November 4th. She was 114 years old. And, and they, uh, she celebrated her 114th birthday at her church, First Baptist in Jacksonville, Texas. And they interviewed her. You know, they always, it's interesting, isn't it? You ever hear that? What do you attribute your age to? And you, I mean, you get the gamut of what people say. But God bless this lady. All she did was she said, um, she made this statement. She said, not only does she love everything about her life. If I'm the interviewer, did you say you were 114 years old? And you love everything. Now, you're not 114. You're probably 30, you know, or something like that. She said I, she loves everything about her life, but she also has no complaints. That's what she said. No complaints. She's been on this earth for 114 years, and she has no complaints. Many of us could give her half of our stuff. To complain about. Um, and yet she, she uh, in fact, the, the article said, if she had wanted to complain, she would have had many things accumulated throughout her 114 years to complain. Yet this lady has demonstrated, demonstrated that complaining is a choice. Did you know complaining is a choice? And when we may not realize it, but we're exacerbated or exacerbated, exasperated and frustrated and we just let those things you know little complaints go out other people interpret it differently you know people are not encouraged when we complain I, I've been hesitating about sharing this quote but some guy named Will Bow I don't know who he is he made this statement complaining is like bad breath I'm like nobody wants to hear about bad breath Complaining is like bad breath. You notice it when it comes out of somebody else's mouth, but not your own. <laughs> it's probably true, isn't it? You know? Um, it, it's so true. I, I know that when I, it comes out of my mouth and I'm complaining, I know because people, I've, there's a few small select people, actually, hopefully you're part of that, that, you know, we, as a body of Christ, we can keep one another in check. And... Um, 
and, and there are some people I, that, that have the liberty to share that with me, and I'm really grateful. Uh, I, I really am. But we don't always notice it when it's coming out of our ma own mouth. But when other people complain, we know. Okay, jump in real quick. The second thing. Ver so verbal discontentment and then verbal discord. Again, verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Disputing. Here's the definition. To, compend, to contend with opposing arguments or assertions. To debate or discourse argumentatively. The word argument is actually a critical thing when it comes to evangelism and something that is called um, apologetics. Apologetics, we just talked about this in the Bible study in our morning. Apologetics, Christian apologetics, is not apologizing for the faith any more than textual criticism is criticizing the text. So many people don't understand that. But, um, but here's, here's the key. Arguments are critical when it comes to reasoning with the faith you and I are supposed to be witnessing. We're supposed to give an answer to every man that asketh us, a reason of the hope that is within us. And we need to be, we need to be prepared to give an answer to some of the legitimate questions that are asked for people that are seeking to learn more about Christianity. So apologetics is not apologizing, it's defending. And the key, a key thing is you need to have arguments. In other words, that's what Paul did. He went in and reasoned with them out of the scriptures that Jesus was who he said he was. That's a paraphrase. But you and I need to have arguments. We need to give good arguments. But that's different than being argumentative argumentative is in fact it goes on in the definition to debate in a vehement manner or with altercation about something paul wrote this to timothy he said the servant of the lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men apt to teach patient in meekness gently instructing those that oppose themselves in other words they oppose the truth it's an old english phrase who oppose the truth, those that oppose themselves. How's it going, guy? i got to quote it now, the whole thing. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, gently instructing those that oppose themselves, that God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. So we need to be gentle, patient, in meekness instructing people. So we need to give arguments. But we must not strive. You know, you've met people that are combative, argumentative. That the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. So we're arguing the facts of Christianity, but we're not doing it in, in a contentious matter. And that's the idea of disputings, is being argumentative i got to jump through here. Um, time is slip, swift, swiftly uh, slipping away. You know, the Bible says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. And Ecclesiastes 7.1, the Bible says a good name is better than precious ointment. You and I need to realize that our words can damage someone's good name. And that we need to care about that. Um. James chapter 3 and verse 9. James is talking about the violation of the tongue for Christians. In fact, that, that's the text where he says, 
in many things we offend all, or in many things we all stumble. Then he said, if any man offend or stumble not in word only, or in word, the same as a perfect man able to bridle his, his whole, whole body. In other words, of all the qualities that people have, the hardest one to control is the human tongue. Let me read that again the way it's. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. You know, I've met a lot of people that other than their tongue are very godly people. But it just seems like that is one of the hardest things that people that can be very godly just can't control their tongue. You know, we got to, we have a responsibility to, again, James then said this he, about the tongue. Therewith bless we God, even the Father. That's a good thing, right? Blessing God, praising God. And therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. And then he says, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. You and I have to be careful that in our desire to defend the faith, we don't become just contentious slanderers. And the idea of, of the, the word disputings has that idea. I did a word study recently in light of something that was going on on the word annul. You've heard of an annulment. We often think, in fact, when you study church history, um, anyway, that's a whole different thing. But listen to what one of the definitions of, it's now obsolete. But the word annul, Long ago used to mean to inflict irretrievable harm or damage on a person, especially to destroy the good name or standing of a person. Do you know that one sharp word or criticism or negative comment about someone else can destroy a good name? Therewith, bless we God, we, out of our mouth we're praising God and then we curse men. James says, these things ought not so to be. I read this, and then i got to jump in. I'm going to make it real quick. But um, this, this to me, I read this and I thought, this is so human nature. That apparently the two countries, Argentina and Chile, had major conflict. There's been great battles over the years. And, and uh, back in the early 20th century, 1904, uh, they, they had a relative time of peace. And they decided they were going to erect a large statue of Christ. It, you know, they were religious. It was a very Catholic area. And so they were going to erect a large statue called the Christ of the Andes or Christ the Redeemer. Maybe some of you have seen it. And it was what it was was they did this thing because these two nations were battling so much and they wanted something to represent and say we are, as long as this statue of Jesus and what he represents is here, we're going to have peace with one another. So they, uh, they erected this big statue to symbolize the pledge between the two countries that as long as that statue stands, Chile and Argentina will be at peace. No sooner had the statue been raised and created when there began to be arguments. And uh, the people of Chile began to protest because they felt slighted because the statue had its back turned on Chile. So they, they create this statue to try to, you know, say, we're going to have peace. And immediately, Chile's like, oh, this isn't fair. 
isn't that like, you know, people, if there's something to complain about. And the, it, be, it began to get so intense. I mean, the, the, the contention. <laughs> isn't it like human nature? Until one, uh, one journalist from Chile um, saved the day. He was a newspaper man. And uh, it's amazing how, you know, you can quell. In, in an editorial um, that he posted, he, he said, listen, the people of Argentina need more watching than the people of Chile. <laughs> and everybody laughed, and that just, just calmed everybody's spirits, you know. It's a soft answer turneth away wrath, you know, that's so true. Uh, but, but think about it. You know, there's so many things. I've thought of this over the years. Because I've, I've rubbed shoulders with pastors for, for three decades plus, And I've been friends to some pastors that have gone through some horrible, horrible church splits. A church split for a pastor is like one of the most grievous things to have to go through. And, uh, and they've shared their stories. And over the years, I've just marveled. Because there's nothing special about me. Really, there's nothing special about us. We're just another church that we've been able to avoid a major split. But there have been times now and again over the years where I've heard rumblings. And somebody said something offhanded or someone said something else and it got to me. And it reminded me of something that caused a major division in another church. And yet, it dissipated. It dissipated. Now, I've tried to preach hard against gossip and slander and tailbearing and just sharing bad reports. Hopefully that's had something to do with it, you know, because... And, now watch, next week we're going to have a major problem, but I want to close with this. This, this was a blessing to me. A pastor friend shared an article. Uh, this was written by a pastor, and this has to do with... In fact, just look at... we got to look at the next verse there, verse 15. Why do we have to... to do all things without murmuring and disputing because it affects our ter- testimony. It's our verbal testimony. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You want to shine as a light in a dark world? Then watch your tongue. Because we can just, just by slandering our brothers in Christ, just by sharing bad reports, without following proper procedure, Matthew 18, you and I can ruin people's testimonies. And just like that, the cause of Christ is harmed. So here's the article that I read. It was from a pastor who... Um, <laughs> here's, a, here's, a, here's a good title for a pastor. Don't waste your discouragement. I love that. That immediately... Written by a pastor that had been a pastor for over 44 years. That, he's got something to tell me. You know. Don't waste your discouragement. I never want to let a good discouragement go by now. You know? But listen to what he said. And this is just one comment. You know, he said, he's talking about the different ch- couple churches that he went through. When he would, and he said, one pastor. A later pastorate, in other words, a church he was considering. I took, a, a later pastorate that I took appeared promising. With several hundred attending, my pastoral duties increased, but so did the challenges and discouragements. He said, the search committee told me on the churches, uh, sold me, the the search committee sold me on the church's unity and love. After a few months, that aura dissolved. 
I discovered the church was fraught with division, bickering, and conflict. Do all things without murmuring and disputings. So again, he said after, um, he said, I discovered the church was fraught with division, bickering, and conflict. I'd walked into an an ecclesiological war, a war zone, ambushed by various factions who wouldn't be satisfied unless I sided with them against the others. That's a lot of churches today. I praise God that I am either so naive that I have no idea what's going on here, or we have peace here. You know, I've been to our business meetings, and and they're very precious. And I value that. I I know that that's something God gives us, um, and we are blessed with that. But remember, when you, what you and I say, especially about other believers in front of the lost, can be blameworthy and, and we, will be, we will be rebuked by that because the world holds us to a higher standard sometimes than we do. So let's be careful with our words.